super professional <laughs> podcast has started. Um, all right, I've got the chat up. I can better mute this so that it doesn't. Oh yeah, if you're watching, so if you're watching the the watch page, uh, Stefan, David, and Seth, you just remember to mute it because you'll get some feedback. So cool. On that note, uh, welcome to episode five of the Absolute AppSec podcast. We are joined. Uh, we have some special guests, David Corsi and Stefan Edwards. So um, with, uh, I'm going to give a little bit of an intro or at least try to, and then they can talk about themselves. Um, I've, Seth and I have known Stefan and Corsi for years now. Um, Stefan, huge program programming language theory nerd uh like he if you i think during this podcast you'll probably see why most of us end up googling the stuff that stefan talks about um because he knows a lot of obscure random things about yeah yeah (laughs) he's the reason google exists let's just you know at least for the geeks (laughs) i'm pretty exactly exactly um and David Corsi, I've worked with, uh, you know, we both work with Stefan and uh, David Corsi. David Corsi's like, I know Go's your, your, your kind of the language you're gravitating towards now, or at least I believe that's true. Yeah, that's definitely still true. Awesome. Um, and you've, you did a talk, you did a talk at a developer conference. I'm trying to remember what the name of that developer conference was. It was SyntaxCon in Charleston. And then I had done Besides Augusta a couple times and some other small ones. And I know, and I know, Stefan, you had spoken, I believe it was, so you did this uh, InfoSec Eeyore talk. Um, I know you did it overseas, but you did it at, uh, was it, was it DerbyCon or was it somewhere else? It was, so I gave InfoSec Eeyore um, at GERCon in 2015. Um, last year I gave um, on being a type heavy scheme programmer in InfoSec at, uh, at Curian, which was in <laughs> Barcelona. That. So go Google that because that <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. uh, all the infosec peeps. You, you can go Google it now, right? Or pause and then Google and come back. <laughs> Justin, I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I gave I gave that talk there. Um, I gave a few talks last year. I don't know, but most of them were on like programming language theory, um, formal verification. I talked about uh, F star and formal verification in infosec. Um, at CactusCon, so um, you know, probably my most yeah. successful talks. Actually, what, what was that? Uh, you got into it on um, Twitter. Well, you had a little uh, back and forth on Twitter, but what was the? I can't remember the language. It was uh, or Solidity and um, and Ethereum. And Ethereum, yes. Yeah. So uh, I was criticizing Solidity for having weird semantics and not. Not actually. Uh, so there's there's an underflow overflow problem with type infer within Solidity itself. So basically, Solidity ty- tries to guess the types of things uh, based on the operations you're doing and, and whatnot. And uh, it's very easy to uh, create something very small that overflows to a 200. 200- has been working on that. Um, the, the, the main developer behind it has been working on that. But uh, 
when I criticized it on Twitter, um, it blew up a little and uh, Vitalik Buterin, who is the person who actually wrote Ethereum, uh, he and Chris ETH or whatever his, his handle is, uh, both jumped in there and were a little unhappy with that criticism. So it was neat. I mean, it was neat to see, but you know. It was neat Chris. to watch. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's not the first time that I've caused some uh, controversy with my language opinions and stuff on Twitter. So, you know. Well, maybe we'll get into some language opinions tonight then, right? Because I know, you know, between the four of us, you know, I mean, we could probably ignore Java and .NET, right, and C Sharp. Just, but you know, we've got quite a bit of experience, especially with the the new hipster languages or the old hipster languages, right? And you're, you know, we get we could we could you know talk about Pascal or you know Progress or some of the old, yeah. But we probably don't want to make people Google too much. But it may be interesting to talk about kind of the advantages and disadvantages that you see, like in the languages that you're currently working in. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that. I, I mean, it's not necessarily on the list, yeah. but it may be a good one to, you know, to talk through. And I don't know. Ken, what are you, what are you thinking? There is no list. Ignore the list. There's <laughs> whatever you guys want. And honestly, like, you, I mean, I, you'll see. The, we, we, uh, David Corsi and Stefan are what I like to call the masters of shit posting. So when it comes to uh, humor, and uh, you're you're not going to see on this podcast tonight a lot, probably a lot of mature mature humor. That's the way we want it to be. So whatevs. You know. Wait, what did I sign up for here? <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah every every time I give a talk, I. I don't have a lot or as much to bring to the table as someone like Stefan. So I judge my success based on if my jokes deliver well. So if I get good laughs from the audience, I walk away completely happy. I mean, I have the opposite issue, right? Like until Curry on, most of the time my talks, I'm happy if people are not comatose by like the third minute or if they're like, <laughs> if the math slides start to come out and people are not, like jumping away from the from the talk already, like getting up. Oh fuck this! I'm out, man. There's math in this talk. Like I'm not doing anything with this. So. <laughs> yeah, when you show too much code, half the audience gets up and leaves. That's not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, especially because my talks are usually until carry on. Uh, like my talks were usually not super packed to begin with anyway. So if I lose half my audience, it's like three or more people leave. Like it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I did one um, for an, a local Charles and I has to say just on SQL injection attacks and defenses, and it says something about the state of the industry and the the average talks that people see because I I made a joke slide where I said okay we're going to go over the SQL query, and I just went on Google and found the biggest query I could find and crammed it with six point font onto the slide so it was packed, and I said we're going to go over this query. Nobody said anything. Nobody laughed. They just kind of looked <laughs> like, like crickets. All right, we're going to move on. See, I think that's a lot funnier than like putting um, putting memes or something into your PowerPoint oh, yeah. presentation. I mean, the, the actual delivery being something so subtle like that is like for me, that's far more entertaining than, uh, you know, forced laughter via some meme I've seen a thousand times. So, right. Yeah. Cool. 
what right. were we talking about? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Something. It doesn't matter. Is, whatever. We're on bullet point number one, the lack of a list. There we go, bullet point number one. That we should come up with a list next time before we start. <laughs> is that what we're thinking? Some sort of structure. Where, where's that? What's that? All right. Let's start. Let, let's start with auto auto exploit then, right? Um, I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm the best person to give an introduction on it, right? But uh, let's let's go, Dave. David, what do you think? All auto right. What is auto exploit? First of all. So I haven't actually attempted to use it, but from my understanding, it's a, a Python script that scans Shodan and can take the Shodan results for whatever latest vulnerability is and automatically attack those IP addresses where Shodan found it. And okay. so pretty much point and click, you know, people throw out the, the script kitty word, point and click hacking. Um, that's that's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, I, I mean, Metasploit, well, for years they had Autopone, right? They kind of removed that because they didn't, I think it was because they went commercial and Rapid7 actually bought it, bought them out, right? And they wanted to create a commercial version. Um, but it's kind of the same idea from my, from my understanding as well, from looking at it, right, is, hey, instead of using Nessus or something else that you're scanning the network from uh, or Nmap, it's actually using Shodan and saying, what are the, what's, what's available that's exploitable and then run that exploit against. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> It just feeds it right in the Metasploit, right? Like there's no, there's, there's no filtering, there's no nothing. There's a bunch of hard-coded text files. I mean, it's really not anything all that amazing. Mm -hmm. So like, well, what's, the, what's the big deal about it right then? Uh, in that case, Stefan, you know, why is everybody up in arms about a new security tool? I mean, we like to get our dicks in a twist about stuff, right? Like that's literally what we do all the time. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? That's what Twitter's about? I mean, what else are we doing this for, right? Like, no, I mean, honestly, it, it's an interesting concept. I think it's more of a, um, I don't want to say like an art piece or something like that, but I mean, it, it, it basically brings knowledge to the fact that these things are very easy to connect together. The work that was actually done um, the, the works that were actually done for for it are really, it, it's just a bunch of glue code. It's not even anything all that interesting. There's a bunch of problems with the code there. Um, I'm sure it's not that much code. No, it's not even that much code, right. And it, it's funny that something so simple can get the entire internet up in arms and, and make people like basically take sides as to whether or not this is good when actually it's just a bunch of like shitty Python, you know, slung together to just pwn something kind of maybe just throw I it mean, in the metaphor. I mean, it's basically basically a python script to take about four clicks and commands out of the metasploit hail mary right so you don't actually have to set those yeah. up yourself you just click right out of a showdown search so i mean it's like yeah. you get your osynth together and you do a bunch of stuff on showdown and then it just puts it into metasploit for you so you don't have to remember which side is L host and which side is R host, and then you're done. But if you look at that code, like I, I posted in one of the slacks that we're all in, and uh, it looks like if, if the host returns unfiltered output, 
um, that is like rm-rf, it's going to be put right into that os.system call and just going to be run as root right from auto exploit. So, I mean, it, it's not great code. It really isn't. No, I mean, I uh, even just scanning it right now. And I mean, for those of you that haven't followed us before, we all do source code review. We do development. And so digging into code is kind of what we do. But I, I mean, I'm seeing the OS system. I mean, most of the code seems to be boilerplate actually for uh, display in a command in a terminal, right? Got that classy ass magenta. Yeah, magenta <laughs> and other colors, right? Like, yeah, so really. Not red, yeah. He, it's like he spent more time doing that than actually glow, gluing, yeah, showdown to Metasploit. At least from what I can see. And why, why, like, why the pickle serialization for the API key? Because you want a VM in your VM, just so you can VM while you're VMing. Um, <laughs> your dog <laughs> makes no sense. No, actually. So it's, it's line 134 that I was looking at, that template there. So the R hosts are pulled from that host list, which is a, a hard-coded, a hard-coded uh, text file, which is awful in and of itself, right? But if you put anything in that host file that is from an untrusted source, it's just literally going to get stuck into a pseudo pipeline that's for running Metasploit right there. So if you put like an apostrophe a semicolon, a space, an rm-rf slash, um, and then, you know, like a crunch. The, the rest of the line will be commented out. It'll erase disk as root and just continue. I mean, it's just, it's stupid. Or not as root, because you would be breaking out of the pseudo there. I guess you could leave it in the, the single apostrophe there. But, I mean, yeah, it's not great code. It really so is. So that sounds like a good talk research topic. Preceding Shodan with... Malicious stuff. Harmful commands for autosploit. To take advantage of autosploit. So hunting autosploiters? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's similar than the, what was it, the Cobalt Strike mm -hmm. um, RCE that was just found. Is that how that one actually worked as well? Something uh, similar? Yeah. I don't want to open up Slack right now. Um, but yeah, there was a, like a, I think it was a Cobalt Strike server RCE like a login bypass so that um, you could attack the pen testers, essentially. You know, Andrew Wilson um, has talked about this for years about like, I don't know if he actually ever produced any research, but he said he wanted to. Um, uh, he, he works over at Bishop Fox. Um, but he yeah, he, he basically... Too, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, he found a cactus con, but he he wanted to do research on just like how vulnerable security tools are because they are. I mean, there's no doubt about it because it's a because it's code. a lot of glue code. Yeah, it's a lot of glue code. Yeah, I mean, and like this code here, it's and I'm by the way trying to look up the Cobalt Strike thing, but uh, okay, it wasn't a, it wasn't an RCC RCE. It was a an easy password brute force done by Ryan Ohoro. Yeah, Ryan Ahura had just released the. Uh, he just he just released that, that tool yeah, as yes, well. Yes, Bruder. Awesome. I am going to put that into the live chat. Uh, uh, yeah, cool. And then I'll put that on the description as always of this video. These links. So, so can we add that to Auto Exploiter? <laughs> and. <laughs> 
I mean, the that code is terrible. an awesome side project for an awesome side project, meaning something that some like it was awesome for them to do that to learn. But in terms of the code, like it's it's just crazy that I mean, here here's here's how this goes, right? I mean, we've all we've all seen the market the the marketing flow. So what happens is is you have these. Uh, you might have this marketing person that you pay money to who then pays money to other places to get you on, you know, as a quoted source for news outlets, uh, for even shitty sites that just are like local to whatever state or region. Uh, it doesn't matter. They're, the whole game is to get your SEO uh, up on your site, right? To get your name out there to to drive traffic. So then what ends up happening is the marketing person gets X amount of inquiries for quotes. And then that person, whether, whether it's a marketing person or it's like, you know, one of these people's publicist or whatever it is. So they, they're like, Oh, you know, we need a, we need a response on this thing with by like, and it's always within like an hour or something. Right. Cause this new, yeah. this story has to break. And that that's really how this this stupid circus of like infosec drama occurs, or it's like one pretty prevalent route of how this all occurs is just because like to get names out there to make money, people have to within a certain time frame be a trusted quoted source and comment on stupid bullshit when in reality you probably should have just said, This isn't worth my time, like move on to the next thing. Is there something is a slow news day? Right, but yeah, that's well, my take. Yeah, and then that's exactly hap- what happened with Autosploiter, right? For some reason, it got picked up, and then everyone started commenting on it. And, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of the mainstream news outlets all picked it up that there was this new exploit that was making it easy for people to hack all the things, right? And, you know, it blew up there for a little while, for like a day, right? Even yeah, though... I mean, Rob Joyce commented on it on Twitter. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm just like, I mean, how many tools are there out there that are similar to this that we know about or that we've seen over the years that haven't gotten any near anywhere near that publicity? So just because it's called autosploit, I, yeah, I mean, I don't understand. It just, <laughs> well, logo, cool name. Yeah. yeah. You know, Done. I, I also don't understand why this exploded like wildfire because anybody who's done any pen testing for more than 15 minutes understands that a, you don't need it and B it's probably more work than it's worth. And it's easier just to go to Shodan yourself and, you know, find what you're looking for and use any number of tools to do the exact same thing. And then you don't have to worry about shit flying everywhere and things auto blowing up and exploits just hitting the wrong targets. Know what you're doing and have a little bit more faith in your skills to yeah. focus your target. Well, isn't, it, isn't there a, a Metasploit gather for Shodan anyway? I thought there was. I thought there already, like from a while ago too, not just... Yeah. So why would you, why would you, if you're going to use Metasploit to begin with, why wouldn't you just use that gather to like actually collect stuff instead of some hacky piece of shit script with hard coded host files? Yeah. There's a showdown search gather in auxiliary. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not like it's even that revolutionary. It's just it kind of blew up there. Yeah, but does it do it in magenta? <laughs> no. I, I mean, come on, man. It's like this is this is very silly. <laughs> like, it is fun to talk about because it was even, like, well, why are you talking about it if you know people yeah. I mean because screw it, because it's fun to talk about nonsense blowing up. We, yeah. We stare at code all day and we need some drama to spice up our lives. Yeah. Don't judge yeah. us. Whoever is beside CHS, that's exactly it. Like when when Baitlich responded there, that that killed it. That really made it blow up when when uh you know people poo-pooed it initially for for no reason whatsoever like it's a it's a dumb idea yes and it, it just connects a bunch of stuff but as soon as someone gets on there and says like oh this is a you know what did he even say was it a cyber weapon or something like this like it was it was it was scare quotes i have to look it up now yeah cyber weapon man no, we, need I do to, too. we need to get into that sweet sweet defense money and develop yeah. some cyber weapons then right? <laughs> 200 lines of python 10 million dollars one line of pearl <laughs> yeah of course one line of pearl that three people can understand yeah exactly well that's and what makes it so understand it if you come back to it you know two, yeah. two hours later either yeah yeah so there's no legitimate reason to put mass exploitation of public systems within the reach of script kitties. Just because you can do something doesn't make it wise to do so. Like, come on, man. <laughs> oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's is... such posturing. Like, I mean, talk <laughs> about mass posturing. Like, if the number of like mass exploitation scripts for script kitties that it I mean, look at Loic and look at all that, those like shitty tools from long ago. Like, are we going to, you know, clutch pearls and get really upset about those for no reason as well? It's just, I don't know. I, it will, seems say, dumb. I will say this. Well, I don't know. This was kind of a long, this was, so the, so I don't, how do you say his last name? Baelic. That's what I'm saying. Baelic. All right. Well, I mean, the articles, so it's on Vice. So, because normally I, you know, I'm kind of trying to read through this because normally what I will, I will say what they normally do though. Uh, okay. Well, he put it on Twitter. Hold on. Yeah. That's where I grabbed it There's from. Yeah. Okay. Well, never mind. I was going to say, well, hey, you know, you normally write like three or four paragraphs and, uh, you know, to, 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 in response to these, uh, media inquiries and then, um, you know, they dissect it for what they want to put out there. But in this case, it's like, no, this is just his Twitter feed. I'll, I'll even post a link to it. It was just his Twitter feed. That was the whole, there was no additional context to take into account. That was just it. Like, this is really bad. I mean, well, to I, be the, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to the author, right? Because I'm sure he was writing this as an exercise and like, oh, this could be useful. And all of a sudden it right. blows up. And I mean, Real realistically, what he had like five hundred Twitter followers and just happened to get picked up, right? That, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm sure he feels a little hard done by the whole thing, right? I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun side project, but it's just, just, yeah, it's just, it's just fun for Ken to bag on people. You know, that's. I wish my crappy side projects got this much publicity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't know. That's a double-edged sword. <laughs> Be careful with, for what you wish for. 
Uh, I'm going to go find some of your worst code and then make it. <laughs> you won't have to look hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's all of his code. This is going to break all our cybers. <laughs> There's no reason for this. Cyber warfare, cyber warfare. This senseless cyber. I mean, <laughs> senseless acts of digital violence. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it, it is funny that Baitlich has a quote from Ulysses S. Grant as his Twitter bio that begins with the art of war is simple enough. So it's like, mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to judge. I guess I could have like some cheesy Sun Tzu like quote as mine, but it's, I, I don't know. It just seems like one of those people who would get all up in arms about something being, um, you know, a weapon of mass destruction when it's really not. Especially considering his background and where he's worked, right? Like the people who've worked for Mannion and FireEye have put out tons of tools that yeah. are cyber weapons. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, and why didn't, right, the, the most recently from Metasploit, speaking of which, right, all the eternal uh, NSA exploits that they find that whoever just posted all the exploits for now they work for basically every vulnerable version of Windows, right? That that to me seems like a bigger deal than, yeah. it, right? I mean, giving us the ability to do that. Because we've all run into that problem before. I mean, I don't know how much pen testing you guys have done recently, but, you know, being in an environment, and, oh, crap, this Metasploit module only works against, you know, Windows 2008 R2 or whatever it is. Um, yeah, having a reliable exploit like that. And obviously the NSA has for a while, but having a reliable exploit is probably more dangerous and more noteworthy than a tool that just binds together, you know, source to exploit. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, the, the auto exploit thing and we've beaten it to death now just yeah. makes it slightly faster than doing it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, there's even other tools on Kali that you could use to do the same thing. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I what is it? Armitage or, you know, some of those others that are there. Is Armitage actually, out of curiosity, I was looking at that recently. Is Armitage still under development or is it like all Cobalt Strike focus now? I got to look at that because I don't think I saw any development on Armitage since like 2016. Okay, so on GitHub, the last commit was on to master was on July eighth, twenty sixteen. Yeah, mm. I mean it, it's showing its age. It still works, but it's because it's Metasploit under the hood, right? Yeah, you just use it as an interface into Metasploit. Right. But if you want to just use the console, that works just as well. So the only time I've ever really used Armitage was um, doing competitions as a red team person. Yeah. where we had, you know, 12 people sharing shells and whatnot. So Armitage was the coordination engine. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that, makes, I mean, that I think, makes more sense. I think the problem with Armitage and developing for it is that it's written in sleep. No, I did Wait, not. we got to all just Google that really quick. I know. What now? <laughs> That's Wait, okay. No, made sleep. Sleep is a combination of Perl and like Objective-C or, or Self or Smalltalk, any of those sorts of languages. So Armitage itself is actually written in, or a large portion of Armitage and, and, and those sort of derived systems is actually written in sleep. And I, I think he did something similar for Cobalt Strike. Yeah, you're right. Sleep.jar. Yep. Yeah. Wow. 
Interesting. Today I learned. Today I right, learned. and so it's it's a little it's a little more like I you know as someone who's written like I have four programming languages that I've written that are in production use or were in production use, and I had no like I was under no assumption that anyone was ever going to look at that code again and not just instantly replace it. Like, so when I see things that are written in a very specific language like this, it, that is not necessarily the most widely used or similar to a widely used language anymore. Um, it, it's not surprising that people don't like jump in to fix stuff in Armitage, right? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that earlier, right? You know, from a complexity perspective and some, you know, simplicity versus security perspective. I was, you know, I've been doing code reviews on some, you know, kill me now, PHP, uh, like enterprise frameworks. And the complexity there, you know, makes it so difficult. Like, it, unless you're somebody that's into one of those on a daily basis. Like the the amount of spaghetti code that it becomes is extremely difficult, and I can only imagine, right? If you don't know what sleep is or how it actually functions, just to get up to speed, to yeah, to fix a problem would be extremely difficult. I mean, how many different contributors are there on Armitage? I mean, this and this could go to any security tool, right? I mean, I think most of us attempt to use something that's fairly common, whether that's Go or Python. Or Ruby, I guess, Ken. But, oh, gosh, we all eat Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I haven't heard that. I'm trying to actually see where, like, the sleep code is being used because uh, so far I'm, like, seeing a lot of Java. So that's why that's, I'm... So there's, he, an API, there's API calls in there that I see. Yeah, a lot of the UI stuff is written in sleep. And then for Cobalt Strike, he made a new version of Sleep called Cortana. And then oh, yeah, see it. the later versions of, of uh, Cobalt Strike. So we're going to rename the podcast uh, Code Reviews. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's under, uh, it's under this, most of it's under the scripts directory. Yeah. Um, require authentication before using serialized objects to communicate. It's a good idea. Sorry, I'm reading the comments on... Some of these cool, cool, cool. Sorry, but there are just curious where that familiar. where that was at. That's all. Yeah, there there are literally. Well, I mean, that does take us into languages a little bit, right? What were you gonna say? Uh, no, I was I was just gonna. I'm looking at this, and the the code is just making me shake my head. But there's only two contributors to Armitage, and one person contributed one line. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so it's like every other open source project that's out there, right? Right. Or, or you know, ninety nine point nine percent of them. Whereas, you know, one person that builds something and then gets tired of it, or gets paid to do something else, so he leaves it. Yep. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just posted the uh, the logging script for sleep. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it looks a lot kind of like there's almost kind of some Objective C style, right? You know, calls and language yeah, parsing that's going on in there. It's interesting. Well. Objective C takes away from small talk and self, right? It yeah. it adds that sort of that sort of objects or meta object protocol to C. Sleep combines that with Perl. 
Corsi is. I'm surprised you haven't fallen asleep yet, Corsi. All I can say is totally. Yeah. So there's four yeah. of us. So two of us have to get up and leave for Stefan to be quiet. Is that that's what we need to do? This is why my talks wow. are not successful. They're so smart. <laughs> Well, <clears throat> so Ken, I did a Ruby assessment two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't hate it. Like I know the jokes, you know, we always beat you up over it. I don't hate it, but when I look at it, it just makes no sense to me. And I think that's because I, you know, I started in C family languages and, you know, grew up through there. I spent most of my time when I was doing actual development in C sharp, and now I'm on Go. But when I look at Ruby, it just Everything is backwards. I've, you know, for the last like couple of weeks, like two or three weeks, uh, no, probably like two weeks, I've been spending a decent amount of time with uh, writing and reading Go. Mm-hmm. And so I've been looking at a lot of Go code, writing some Go code. And I have to, and I will say this Go code, like reading that reminds me of how much easier other languages are because Ruby is, yeah, Ruby is a pain. Uh, in that, oh, hold on. Ruby is a pain in that sense. Um, like to to explain that a little bit better, the problem that a lot of people have is that when they start, like you look at this this line of code and you see this method and then you're like, okay, what does that method do? And then you follow that method and you're like, okay, it goes to this place. And then this place, it's like, uh, don't understand. Like, where's this defined? And you end up going down a rabbit hole because of the way that Ruby allows you to sort of, it's the style of writing Ruby yeah. for one. And two, things get defined on the fly at runtime yeah. really frequently. And so that's a confusing piece, the whole metaprogramming aspect to Ruby. So. Yeah, I was looking for an authorization yeah. call for one specific function. And, <laughs> I remember that. You know, I, was, I was going back to, to Stefan and one other guy on the team who's a Ruby expert and you know, I'm like, where does this thing get defined? Who has permissions to make this call? And he's like, well, it can be on the, the main application controller or it could be anywhere. Yeah. I'm like, well, that, well, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, cause if you include a gem and you know, you've got it in your gem file dot, or you've got your gem file and gem file dot lock of your app. And at that point, usually you have a file under like your initialization directory. And if it's in there and it's initialized, you may not even realize what you're looking at and what's being called has been defined somewhere else. You need to open up a gem. You need to look inside the gem to figure out how that code works. And sometimes those gems, as is the case with like OmniAuth related stuff and device, you're talking about multiple gems to figure out simple stuff like authentication. So it's, and then that can be overridden within the application itself. So like, it's just, yeah, I, I understand why people don't enjoy it. I mean, looking at, Go code for the last couple of weeks. I'm like, ah, that's a lot easier. It's not. It's, it's nicer. Very succinct. Yeah, agreed. There's no magic. Well, yeah, I mean, eventually you'll you'll make your way to PHP and call it good. Is that what's going to happen? Again? <laughs> oh yeah, why uh, not PHP? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, language for the masses. I, I love how we all just kind of sigh and then we move on. <laughs> you see, kids, once upon a time. What's that? I'm actually sighing about Go more than PHP, but PHP is atrocious. Go is just yeah, sad I mean, to me. It has its problems. Go? Yeah. 
Now, you know what the thing about Go is, is that I remember on Nine Fans when they were first talking about forking Limbo, which is the predecessor to Go, has a similar syntax. Back in my day. <laughs> and I remember the discussions there. And, and Limbo fixes some of the problems that people have with Go, but they just went a different direction. Yeah, forking Limbo. It's a forking Limbo, man. <clears throat> I think one of the things that, that was really weird in my career is I was a developer first, and then I got into systems engineering. And then 10 years later, I got back into coding and code security. And so I missed the whole revolution of generics. Um, generics were just introduced into C Sharp when I was leaving that job. And I didn't look back. And so 10 years later, I came back and people were like, oh, well, Go doesn't have generics. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like, <laughs> stop saying that word. <laughs> That's, that, that, that would make it a little easier, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Like, you're generic. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stop backing on my language. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I heard people talking yeah. about concurrency and go, I'm like, you know, up, I'm probably 30 seconds into the conversation. I'm like, all right, I have no, I, no idea at all. I'm completely lost on what you're coming from a Ruby background, right? Like functional. Yeah. Yeah. Threading. What the fuck? Like <laughs> currency. What do you need that for? Just have more hardware. Right. <laughs> That's how you fix that. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Well, I mean, along those lines, Dave, I mean, what is it that pushed you into go? Right. I mean, obviously, you got back into security stuff and programming. Yeah, honestly, I'm, I won't try to front at all. Like, I was watching stuff on Twitter, and Go was just, like, you know, getting lots of play as the cool new language. And, you know, it's really tightly coupled with, like, a lot of the container world. Um, you know, and when I did systems engineering, I was an early adopter of virtual machines. And I wouldn't say I've been an early adopter of containers, but I'm definitely adopting them. Um, and so Go kind of felt like a natural choice. Okay, I mean, I mean that makes sense. Usually, you're you know scratching some sort of itch. You know, I wondered if it was just you wanted to be a hipster and not <laughs> play. Right? Yeah, honestly, I didn't even really know. Like, it wasn't until I I had picked Go that I learned that there were you know that it was like a hipster cool thing, and that you know there was Rust and Ruby. Like, I just kind of said, all right, we got to do something, so let's pick this one. Mm -hmm. Hey, you guys want to see me break break uh, Stefan's brain? Sure. Stefan, what's your favorite programming <laughs> language? <laughs> I mean, right now, too large. <laughs> I'm dabbling quite a bit with F-Star and, uh, and Idris quite a bit. Um, I'm working on Carmel, which is my own ML dialect. Um, do a lot of stuff with F-Sharp, uh, OCaml, those sorts of things. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm much more into the very expressive type system, functional programming language space than like the the opposite side of where Go was going with a, a simpler language. I'm looking for a fairly That's simple you're language. Very expressive. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, it's it's more because I'm 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 curious about the expressive type system. I'm curious about what we can prove at compile time versus what we have to wait until runtime to to actually use. So. Um, 
you know, interesting to see where F star is going and, and Idris and all those sorts of like higher typed, higher kinded languages are going. So you sound like an Intel chip. Did I lose everyone? <laughs> wow. Your face sounds like one. <laughs> We're not on Slack. I can't give you the dad joke emoji. <laughs> You're speculative. Uh, good times. What's the Idris? I can't. I'm trying to find that one. So Idris is a uh, a Haskell dialect that is dependently typed. So dep- when you when you talk about dependent types, basically you're you're encoding other into the type itself. So for example, we're all used to having like integers. We're used to having arrays. But in a dependently typed language, you can say I have a, an array of n of n you know elements. And I have another array of M elements. And I can enforce at the compiler level that M should always be greater than or equal to N at any given point in the program. So the program won't even compile if the, if the uh, destination array, let's say, is smaller. So you can avoid an entire class of programming language bugs at the compiler side just by proving things about your code. Does that make sense, Ken? You, you, you look like you're constipated. <laughs> Well, that's just my that's, that's just, just my look. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm just. It's uh, fascinating. I just feel like of... it's a level above my capabilities. Well, it's just. Well, it doesn't... I think we're becoming that. Like when I worked at when I worked at eight, uh, at Wicker, um, I tried using ATS, which is another dependently typed language for some stuff, and it was like, guys, you'll never believe it. I was able to prove that uh, the buffer I use to read in HTTP rec- or SIP requests, uh, I can prove that it's never longer than like a thousand. My coworkers were not impressed by this, uh, but that was like days worth of work in order to get to that level. So, well, who are you? That, that's the question. Then, who are you? Who were you working with at that point? I mean, did they just not? Was security not an issue, or was it just? Or did you need to give a four-hour prerequisite class? I mean, it's, <laughs> that, team, okay. that team, like Wicker's entire backend at the time was PHP, believe it or not. Um, so we were, we were just experimenting. There was another really smart uh, guy who worked with me there who was moving Wicker to hack, which was interesting, um, hmm. seeing all the stuff he was able to get from an incremental step from PHP to a slightly better language. Um, he was doing really awesome work. I was experimenting on like greenfield stuff that would be, uh, you know, a little bit more interesting or a little bit different. But I mean, like ATS, it was extremely difficult and extremely verbose to get anything going. Um, and when it was done, it, it felt like you had climbed a mountain. I mean, it was. Let me find some of these examples here. Uh, so they going, are back ugly. The, going back to the Idris or Idris, uh, however I'm supposed to say it. The Idris Elba programming language. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it, it does say, because I was like, well, what wasn't computing is that, like, you're dealing, if you're dealing with dynamic data, like, how can you evaluate, how, how can you basically perform that, what they're calling eager evaluation? But it's it's not everything. It's just there's there's some... Some types can be specified by the values, if I'm understanding that correctly. It's, it's basically, you can encode that, the, the value into the type. 
so that the, the type actually depends on the value. But I, I, I don't want to get too theoretical here, but you know, have you heard of the, the Curry-Howard isomorphism? Oh, yeah, man. Me. I mean, I'm reading that all. <laughs> what the? F- no. <laughs> no. Basically, basically, types are a program, right? There are Wait, logics sorry, that you apply. Like, types are, types are a, a programming language. They are a logic that you apply to your, your program, right? Right. So when you have languages like IDRIS or ATS or anything like that, they don't delineate between term language, which is what you program in, and type language. That, that delineation is, is broken down a little bit to allow you to express certain things that were certain constraints that you maybe wouldn't be able to otherwise uh, express. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, and it also okay. falls along with some of what I'm reading right here. I mean, it's, it's similar. It's sort of a, an evolution of the difference between static and dynamic typing. Right. Um, exactly. And that's something that always felt natural to me. Like dynamic type languages just make me feel weird. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not oh. in a good way. <laughs> we won't talk about um, it anyway after it. But <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of the other things that I've been sort of loosely following, um, if you follow Jess Fraz on Twitter, like she's pushing for generating SE comp profiles mm-hmm. at compile time, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know those sorts of things where we can build the security into the the language are you know just absolutely genius, and we have to get there. Um, those things will will yeah i i mean any anything that helps or that takes away those security flaws as a programmer is working right i, I mean i think we all see that in our day to day jobs is you know just the proliferation of frameworks and how they've prevented or orms and how they prevent sql injection vulnerabilities or injection vulnerabilities um i mean when i yeah you know, yeah when oh, what? OWASP top 10. OWASP top 10. No. Wait, wait. We, we talked about that last week. You guys are you're coming late to the game. So. <laughs> but, no. I mean, yeah, that's no, exactly I mean, what we're talking about is, right, how, how do we tell the computer that we're trusted or how do we tell the compiler that we're trusted that the code is and let it determine whether or not we're, we're validating or, yeah, right? I mean, that's basically what's going on with, strongly typed languages, right? Right. Yeah. Building I mean, in that, protections to take, away the, to take away the chance of failures and lower the risk. I mean, we've been doing this stuff. I don't even want to say out loud the number of years we've been doing this stuff. And other than a few recent frameworks that are, you know, by default adding CSRF tokens and by default doing encoding and whatnot, you know, we haven't evolved in the past decade. Um, so naturally, we need to grow towards this, you know, built-in protections because developers are coming out of school and they just want to get a job and businesses just want to put software out. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody, nobody but us nerds cares about, you know, static typing and whatever that crap Stefan was talking about. <laughs> Your power. Yeah. Are those, um, I thought I had read, speaking on that note, I thought I had read that those schools that they'd popped up for like, um, learn you know ruby or python or whatever in a couple months like those little boot camps like iron yard yeah are those i i from my understanding those aren't doing so hot but maybe i'm wrong 
No. I, don't know. I know I know a guy in Charleston who went to one and he got a job as a, a front end developer and he did really well, but he took it upon himself to to really learn it well. Mm-hmm. So so I don't know. Well several of them have gone out of business though, right? Like there was a big consolidation, there was several of them like begging for students and then they went out of business. I mean, I think it's like anything else. It becomes popular, people replicate the model, there's too many of them. <laughs> The weaker ones die off, and then you know survivorship bias sets in, and and then you know in a few years we'll have like schools instead of camp, and people will be setting up schools that are like longer term, you know, paid for models. Or, I don't know. Something where, you, where you get like a paper, maybe even a paper or de- some sort of decree <laughs> <laughs> that you know what you're doing. Yeah, weird, weird concept. You know, I mean, I, I. I saw the exact same thing um, when I was doing network engineering with all the Cisco boot camps. You know, I, I yep. studied and practiced and paid for way too much Cisco hardware at my house and went out and got my CCNA on my own. Um, and then later on when I was working in the DOD, uh, the company SAIC that I was wor- working for was just like, Hey, you, we're going to send you to your CISSP boot camp and three SANS courses. And so, I mean, it was within a year, and I got four certifications. Um, Dang. Yeah. I worked for SASC, um, but, yeah, it, they didn't give me any four cert- <laughs> certifications in a year. Get so, special. I, I, maybe Seth is the only person who hasn't worked for SAIC. <laughs> <laughs> I worked for SAIC. That's, that, that's all me. I've, I've been purely commercial and... <laughs> that way (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it was good times you know and the group that i was working with we all got sent you know as part of this brand new cyber warrior program that nobody really understood oh god Um, or still does yeah or still understands um we had a great time we got some certs you know and in the dod that's directly tied to dollars so we're like fuck yeah i'm going so yeah, I'm well, still, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and I mean, you know, as far as the like training people to do different things, I, you know, I always go back to like the the heyday of web, you know, 1.0 where everyone was a programmer because they knew HTML and they would go do an HTML boot camp. And I'm like, really? Right. And I, you know, and then Dreamweaver, you know, finally came out with a, a stable version and all of those people were like out of a job because you can drag <laughs> the table from them. Right? I'm like, okay, it, it's very cyclical, right? You know, just, uh, oh, how quickly yeah. can I get up to speed? The ones like your friend that actually go in and dig into it, they're going to be okay either way, wherever they learn that stuff. Uh, but you get the, you get, you kind of get that swing, the, hey, it's popular to be a programmer, right? Yeah. But not everybody has the passion for it. I mean, we see that in the industry too, right? It's very, you know, it's, it's very easy to say you want to be a security person, but it's harder to actually back that up and go out and do the things that make you a good, you know, AppSec professional. So. Wow, we have so many good links. Thanks for sharing this one. Um, was that, yeah, it was Stefan. Sorry, he was uh, po- posting a link to, okay, well, I screwed up the link. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it's interesting to see how those boot camps come around, um, disappear with the market. Now, I mean, it, it, it sucks if you if you paid for one of those, though, and you didn't really get like if, 
there's so many of them and, and how reputable they are is always going to be problematic. Like if you're, especially if you're not in the industry, it's hard to, to determine how reputable something you're actually paying money for is, you know? And not only that, yeah. I think they, I think they prey on people who don't realize that you can get exactly. the exact same knowledge at Barnes and Noble for $40, right? Like, right. Yeah. I mean, there's wow. something to be said for like recurse center and those sorts of places that bring people together. Not only do you get the, you get the boot camp experience, but you get to like sit down in a room like Seth and I have done, or like you and I have done, uh, you know, Ken or, or even Corsi and I, uh, like to sit down work with someone and do something as a project. Like if, if it's structured well, it could be interesting. If it's just, Hey, we're going to learn CSS three today, and we're going to do selectors. That that's book actually have physical facilities, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I was talking with uh, you know one of my friends that um, he was asking something similar, right? He's like, "All right, I I've been doing security kind of as a pen pen tester for the last couple of years. I want to get into coding more. What should I do, right?" He's like, I'm going to go do like my AWS certifications. I'm like, great, you should do that. He's like, but I want to be a full stack developer, right? That's the new, all right, we got to be full <laughs> stack devs. 10X. And, I'm like, and he's like, well, I could go take like a, you know, six month course and they're going to teach me all this stuff. And I'm like, really? Right. I, I mean, there is a place for someone like you that's dedicated and knows what you want to get out of it to go and do a two week or a six weeks, six week, six week course Sex rather week than spending you know getting an associate's degree at a university where they teach you the same thing but most of that knowledge you already have because you're in the industry right um so it's you know but it's hard to pick out what what the good ones are without talking to somebody that's been through those courses and i mean he fully recognized that hey i can go to barnes noble and pick up a book but I won't be dedicated enough unless I have someone that's walking me through it, telling me, Hey, I've got to finish this assignment by next Wednesday, that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, it was like, well, you need to go look at these different courses because there's enough of them out there right now that they, they should be able to train you. There's a, there's a Twitter account that I, I followed for a little while, but it wasn't really for me. Um, so I ended up unfollowing him, but it's code newbies. Um, and so they talk about a lot of the stuff that newer developers are doing. And one of the things that I think they do best is like sort of like daily motivations and the 30 days of code and stuff like that, just to keep people going and just get them, you know, if you just sit down and write one light of code today, just go do it. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll, you'll get better over time mm -hmm. and you will be a 10 X unicorn. I like project Euler. Um, it's, but that's very math focused, but there are all sorts of like code kata websites for stuff. Um, the other thing I like to do is for myself, if I'm picking up a new language, I like to build tools that I've already built in another language and rebuild them in this new language that I'm building. The ones I usually focus on are reading tar files, right? Cause. Uh oh, did we lose? What, what kind of files were those? Reading par files? Tar files. Oh, tar files. Okay. <laughs> that works. Input, <laughs> output. Did we do this as well? No, no, we didn't. He's just no, I'm just trying to fix these links because. Uh, yeah, it looks like they're broken. 
they were, but it turns out if you put a little, if you type something, do a uh, colon and then put in the link, then it's not broken. So, okay. But if you just put it in the link, just put in the link, then it breaks for whatever reason. Or maybe it's because I'm copying from group chat into the, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. I, knew, I learned, a, speaking of links, I learned a neat trick on Twitter today. So like all those URL shorteners like Bitly, mm-hmm. if you if you copy the URL, put it in your address bar, and then put a plus on the end, it'll take you to the analytics of that link, show you how many people clicked on it, um, you know, little oh. stuff like that. That, so that, could, be, that could be useful. <laughs> yeah. That could definitely be useful. Sweet. So we're talking boot camps, talking new languages. Um, yeah, Stefan stopped off there, so I'm not sure if we're going to get him back. Hopefully we will here in a minute. Um, I mean, so, you know, like we've always kind of approached the new language thing from a similar perspective, right? Um at least personally, right? You know, one of the things that I've always done is, hey, here's a new framework or here's a new language. I'm going to go build a web app in it. And then I'm going to see how SQL injection could manifest itself, right? How hard is it to actually, you know, perform or or write an XSS vulnerability? We have all those vulnerable apps that we've written to help train over the years. Not only is building it, number one, you learn the language syntax and things like that, but by building in the vulnerabilities, you realize what's built what security functions are built into the language and how they can, or how they're actually used, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, And Ken knows this. I did this with with Go not too long ago. And, you know, we use it internally for training, so it's not going to be open source. Um, But, you know, building, just like you said, you learn the language in a different perspective. You know, like some of the things that, I was trying trying specifically to build vulnerabilities in just didn't work without going really out of my way. Like XXE, Golang just is not going to do it. It doesn't work unless you add third-party dependencies to do the DTD parsing, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're doing that, um, you know, you can, you can set yourself up for failure. But that and, you know, getting cross-site scripting to to pop in Chrome, I had to add directives to disable the, you know, the XSS protection. Um, yeah, and that's pretty common, right? I, I, I remember, you know, Ken and I running into like a node problem trying to get NoSQL injection to work with later versions of Mongoose. It's not <laughs> possible, right? It's yeah. like so difficult <laughs> to actually write an example of that because of the protections that they built into the library that I just like, it became it, like it was a nightmare, right? For, for yeah. what, for what was it? That's node, right? Don't you remember when we were playing with no SQL injection? Oh no, that wasn't, that was just because uh, the type was uh, not a, by the way, just real quick. Um, logical says that he's switching max because he's having some issues with his other one. So um, he'll be on in a minute, but no, that, that turned out to be uh that just turned out to be an issue where uh, we were actually handling the JSON request at uh, the type for that JSON request as like a oh as JSON and not as text or something like that. The reverse of that, yeah, it was the reverse. It was it was like text and I don't know. It was it was our it was it was my it was my fault. I'm not even gonna put pin that on you. It was my fault. Gosh, Ken. Yeah, Maybe. but, it, it but yeah, 
but but that's I mean that's exactly the stuff that you run into and you realize how they've built the security protections because you're trying to exploit them and fix them all at the same time, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really eye-opening and it was kind of fun, you know, and it's something that I I've thought about building a separate one to kind of open source. One of the one of the big debates in the the Golang world and on the, you know, like the Gophers Slack is do you build web interfaces with just a standard library or do you use something like Buffalo? Um, you know, and you have your your war camps that are staunch supporters of either way. And so when I did the one for our internal training, I did it just with the standard library. And it's it's definitely not as robust, um, but it's very simple and you know the template engine works and and you can get it done. But as a newbie, it definitely took me 10 times longer than it should have because I was figuring things out, you know, sort of Lego block by block instead of just plopping down the instructions and putting it all together. Yeah. And that's, I, I mean, that's actually one of the problems that I've had in the past is, hey, you know, I'm going to build this new language. How much middleware do I actually want to use or how many frameworks do I want to use on top of Node, right? Yeah. Because... All right, we we know that everyone uses Node and Express, so yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, but with Django, it's the same thing. Like, how much are we actually going to add to that? And, you know, to evaluate the security of that framework, because you you start to limit um, your audience for that, right? Because yeah. not everybody's using Express, not everybody's using Django with that specific template version, or you know, whatever it is. Um, it becomes a, I mean, it's still interesting to me as someone that's trying to figure out how, what the security is of this framework or of this language, but it still is, it becomes less useful outside of that. Welcome back, Stefan. I had to grab another MacBook because the, the first one just stopped being able to resolve Google completely. <laughs> so I'm sitting oh, on- I'll turn off my rat tool. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> You didn't have to install a rod if you just wanted to see. And never mind. Did you use auto exploit? exploit. I was running that. You auto exploited him. Oh, good lord. Uh, well, yeah. Not to go back on the auto exploit thing, but did you see that Jerry wrote the uh, auto exploit? Uh, yeah. 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 What it was called. Yeah. Where he just like basically. Uh, you know, it was about as complex as Autosploit. He just blacklisted all of the Shodan IPs so no one could find you, right? It was mainly to be humorous, but then people were like, oh, this really helps. <laughs> I was like, well, he said he had like he's four in a- interviews around that, right? You know, Right, exactly. He said he went to bed, like he wrote it as a joke, went to bed and then woke up with, in, like, with it mentioned in like a, a huge number of, of mainstream publications that people are like, there's protection out there already. <laughs> so good job, Jerry, saving us from ourselves. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh InfoSec is so stupid. So, it's so dumb. I mean, oh yeah, that's so funny. He wrote that as a as like a humorous thing, and they they took it seriously. I didn't even realize they took it seriously. That's great. Yeah. Oh wow. Cool. I told him I was going to write anti anti. <laughs> You're going to start proxying Shodan IP. Yeah. Directly to whoever's in the minute. 
you know, that, all, all I mean, we we could theoretically form a little a little hacking. We need a logo. We need a name, and uh, and then an we, just need a, we just need like or create two different groups. They're just opposing each other, <laughs> going back and forth with like one line, two line pieces of code. War games, cybering. Yep, that's actually a thing. It's uh, it's called Core Wars. It's a game that we all play where we we write code against one another. Um, yeah. yeah, you don't have well, to I, like. We, we wanted to do that publicly though on GitHub, and you know, release so the media would pick it up. That's what we need. <laughs> Ken, I, I found the logo by the way. <laughs> and do I want to click on this? Yeah, <laughs> you do. No, I'm not going to put. It. I'm not going to put that out there. <laughs> I'm not going to repost that. It's a common vegetable. It's a common vegetable. It's With a very vascular common vegetable. Oh, oh Lord. What else did we have to? Because uh, I know we had. We had the, da, 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 da. oh yeah, there were, um, well, I guess the, so with the autosploit piece, but not talking about autosploit, going to the uh, the actual issue that someone posted, uh, where I thought this was like interesting, uh, you know, God, let me can see you, if the link will work. Yeah, can you post that again, Ken? Uh, yep. Uh, yeah. I just put GitHub there. All right, uh, here, I'll put it in this one too. So basically, and I don't know the re the re reputability of this comment, but in that issue, they say that uh, well, it's saying that the sh the author of the sh of the Shodan tool said the craziest thing that ever happened with the Shodan tool was someone that had seen an elderly person being abused by their daughter, and then uh, basically somebody was using Shodan to find webcams. This person found a webcam the elderly person was being abused by their daughter on the webcam. The person who was searching for webcams had the presence of mind to record it and then, uh, was then provided to law enforcement. And that was used, uh, against or in the trial, uh, against that person. I think that's what it said, which was yep. like crazy. Yep, if true. Basically it. I mean, you know, he, he does call that out. The chances of something like that happening are pretty low of someone actually seeing that or watching your webcam. But it, it being exposed like that, it could be recorded somewhere too, right? It's very easy for someone to do that. Yeah, and I know, well, and then, so then there's this, this uh, oh, what is it, this, why is it looping? I'm having the hardest time with the internet tonight. Oh, yeah. Just the regular old internet. Uh, oh, it's because I didn't put the link in there. Um, so mm, that might not, that might be difficult to, uh, for us to take a look at, but um, gosh, never mind. There was an article on, it was along the lines of using medical, a medical device as evidence. Here we go. I'll put the link here. <laughs> a medical right. device, huh? <laughs> using, yeah. Using the um, so basically, what was it? A uh, there was a there was a fire, and they suspected arson, and the 
pacemaker of the person they suspected, the homeowner they suspected of like committing arson against themselves. Um, they they use the pacemaker data. Oh yeah, which, I remember this. Yeah, to basically in the trial, it was allowed to be used as data. And uh, <laughs> one of the interesting points brought up was okay, so you can do that with a pacemaker, but like what about cochlear implants or you know other? Uh, there was another implant men- mentioned. Uh, basically, medical devices. <laughs> See, not going to stay mature. It's not going to happen. Well, you know what? I, I'll I will take this in a funky direction, but I will keep it as a, as mature as possible. But uh, Sarah Jamie Lewis, she does um, she she does a lot on um, like internet internet connected adult devices. Um, and it's been really interesting to see the research that she's done on those sorts of like IOT, like where privacy and IOT meet, um, especially in her, in her area with, um, you know, adult devices and, and cameras and all sorts of accoutrement that goes along with, uh, with adult sexual aids that are also internet of things devices. And it's really interesting to see the research that she comes up with as, as to how uh, broken a lot of these devices are that really are your most intimate and, and private moments that you would have um, with partner or partners um, you know and it, it's interesting to see what she pulls out of this sort of stuff in her research all the time uh, what do you have a Twitter handle or anything I can link to folks yeah it's literally I'll, I'll send I'll put it in chat right now cool awesome and her, just to be clear, her Twitter is not safe for work. Like she did a thing on fingerprinting blowjobs and stuff. I mean, it's really, she's, she's an interesting, uh, interesting follow on Twitter if you're in security because she does a lot of really interesting research. It's just not always safe for work research. Fair enough. So there's the warning. It's not safe for research. So, or I'm reading, I'm reading and yeah, it's not safe for work. It's probably not safe for research either, but whatever. Depends on what you're researching. Yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. I've got the link. Cool. Yeah. She, she's a super awesome follow. Um, really interesting, really interesting uh, lady who, who does a lot of interesting stuff. But one of the things that she talks about a lot is, is privacy and, and anonymity and, and, and those sorts of things as they, as they meet with internet of things and, and the whatnot. So uh, interesting. Yeah. It's, you it's know. super interesting. That, that horse has left the gate and it's not coming back. Nope. If, it, if it is, if anything is connected to anything, somebody is tracking it and it's not in your best interest. Yeah. They, they actually did mention the Fitbit two separate times in this article. Um, let's see. One was like, so um, fit, uh, murder victims Fitbit was used, used to determine whether her murder's alibi held up based on the distance she had traveled before her death. And then in another case, a woman's Fitbit was used to determine her general fitness levels. Um, don't know how like that works, but. Well, I mean, you got people that are tracking like their significant others, Apple watches and their like, you know, heart rates and things like that. Right. It, it can tell quite a bit about, Hey, what, what activities is somebody doing when they're traveling or they're doing something else? Right. It, you know, Look and, at the, and that, that doesn't even, but that doesn't come to the level of like court. 
um, style, right, activities. But at the very, I mean, you could see something like that being introduced in, you know, hey, a divorce proceeding. You know? um, it's all tracked. You know, it, somebody has access to it, and a lot of people share it out. I mean, that goes to the, um, what was it, the Strava? Yeah. Um, yeah. Map data, right? The fact that you could, you know, you were friends with somebody that's in the military and all of a sudden you see the routes that they're running in Afghanistan somewhere, right? Or in a sensitive location. And, or worse, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I have to ask this, and I'm not going to ask you to disclose the location, but who amongst us actually looked at a location that they used to work at and to see if that location was on the Strava maps. Cause I know I did. And the, the two locations that I was mainly working at were both like, you saw the red track, the red outline on there. It was, yeah, yeah. I went and looked at one and apparently um, either nobody runs there or they had some way of blocking it because it was devoid of all red lines. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yep. I mean, in, you know, in in the U.S., right? Depending on where you're at, there's so many people, and there's so much data that's out there. It's not as it's not as telling, definitely. But yeah. Anyway, well, guys, we're at. Oh, did we lose Ken? We're at an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, let's let's kind of get some some closing thoughts. If Ken actually can join back up, he probably will. <laughs> We there actually, <laughs> we can't close the podcast. It's, it's yeah, unless can't. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. No, I was trying to, okay. So I was clicked on one of the things for the Strava um, thing for the, to, to, to read up a little bit more on the Strava um, thing. And then it started video and I hit command W, but I was in the wrong. Yeah. I closed Google. Like that. Whatever. I'm an idiot. That's the TLDR. You're not an idiot, Ken. <laughs> no github oh no github hoodie yeah that, that's right where's your github hoodie well uh, yeah i mean i was just saying we're at about an hour and 15 minutes so we'll go ahead and wrap up I, I just wanted to get some closing thoughts from these guys you know both on just appsec in general or you know any any closing thoughts on what we talked about today so hey, stefan we'll start with you why? Because I'm the more long-winded of the two, and you want me to <laughs> shut the fuck up earlier? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just shut up already and let, let David talk. No, no I, go I, ahead, man. I mean, I, you. everyone knows me. I, like, I am, I think with newer languages, we can finally get to the point where we have those sorts of formal specifications, those sorts of, or even semi-formal uh, specifications that we can actually verify, extract code from, and really understand finally what we're doing uh, doesn't doesn't really matter the language that we're we're you're looking at or or whatnot. Like I think we're heading in the direction where proofs of correctness and understanding what your your application is actually doing is going to be where most research is focused, if not most actual AppSec programs. Eventually, AppSec programs will get there. It's just that research is, is really leading the way currently. They're kind of seesaws, right? You have this, you have uh, industry generating a lot of stuff, and then that kind of dies away, and then research picks up the pace a little bit, and then it dies away. And it's, it's a good back and forth. And I think right now, research is leading the way with better languages. And you see companies like Galois, or, uh, you know, like, 
a lot of quant firms and whatnot are using these more advanced languages um, and more advanced tooling, more advanced compilers, and they'll they'll get. I'm waiting for Corsi to fall asleep on me. <laughs> no, I was just about to refute you that I know a HFT firm that does all of their most critical code in Bash. I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, are there quants doing it in Bash, or are there? Fuck if I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of them. A lot of them are using Haskell, right? But for every single one that's quant? using a quant, is that that little fruit that's like an orange? But <laughs> that's a quint. <laughs> that's a quint. I think. I think for every firm that you see that is using something like Haskell or or OCaml or A plus or any of those sorts of languages, you'll see five that are using C and Bash and Tickle and all those weird old languages. But I think at the end of the day, people are moving towards being able to prove things and being able to understand things about their applications and their networks, right? We have SDN. Now people want to know that they can prove that their network operates in the way that they expected it to. So I think we'll see more of that, more of like Microsoft Project Everest and those sorts of things moving forward. So that's my long-winded... Nice. No, no. I, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we're we're moving in the right direction, but on the commercial side, yeah. you know, as far as like code that I review, yeah, I, we we don't see a lot of that yet. But nope. it'll come. It it does. It it'll come because there's a need for it. So, well, Dave, it, about, oh. it's yeah. like JML. Remember JML? Yeah. yeah. And and how many assessments have you been on with JML? Because I know for me, it's been like two. Yeah. In my entire career in government. It was like two assessments. So it's it, yeah, it never took off. So yeah, it's just not there yet. So it'll be interesting to see where we go. Oh, definitely. Dave, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, you know, we talk to a lot of developers in the jobs that we do, and it's very rare that you come across any of these people that just don't care about security. Usually they're kind of interested and they want to write good code and they want to do a good job and they want it to be secure, but they've got so many other pressures and so many other priorities that they can't get to those defects. And until there is some sort of feedback loop with the businesses, like Equifax that gets hacked, um, you know, all these huge companies that get major breaches and lose millions upon millions of records, until there's some feedback and they feel some pain from that, it's never going to get any better. And we as InfoSec practitioners are stuck in this place where we're you know, feeling undervalued and feeling hated. And it can be really demoralizing when most of us just want to help and make things better for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I haven't, I, I mean, in, you know, in my career, I haven't run into a lot of people. Oh, well, no, I haven't run into anybody that's been like, Hey, we just don't want to secure things. Right. It's usually I, we're choosing something else instead of security. Right. And that's and, and that's Stephen, kind of the discussion. Stefan and I have yeah, dealt with the guy, them, right? Yeah, until Stephen it costs and I have dealt. Company, they're not going to care. So. Right. Yeah, Stefan and I have dealt with the guy on this one customer that, I mean, he just doesn't agree with anything we say. We're like, look, you got this vulnerability right here, and I can do this right now for you. And he's like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, he's not. Talking- <laughs> <laughs> fake vulnerabilities, fake vulnerabilities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So cool. Well, yeah, I mean, we appreciate you guys coming on. We'll have to do it again because... Thanks for having us. Yeah, I wore my blood crowd shirt after you guys had the... Oh, nice. After yeah. after we had our big bug crowd discussions. That yeah. Be- 
I would actually love to get um maybe I'll uh, reach out to like uh Jason Haddix. Yeah, reach out um, to him. Get him come again. He'd be an interesting one to talk to. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's got some good, really good insight statistics. I mean, he talks about all the time some uh uh like what's what's successful when bug hunting, how to be successful with that and all that. So that's pretty interesting stuff. But this was a by the way, this was a lot of fun. And I definitely I want to do it again. This was this was a good time, guys. Like uh thanks yeah. for coming on. This was it, I it's you know, it's I always say we always say this before the show. We're always like this goes this whole like hour time slot we try to at least meet just, it just goes, you know, and tonight was no different. It just went by, uh, just flew by. Cool. Yeah. Same here. I'm always around if you ever need comic relief. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Sure. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks everyone. All right.